I pick some mushrooms before dinner, Joe. You don't say. Mushrooms mean anything to you, Joe? Well, eat them on my steak when I'm out and the meat's not good enough as tis. If I brought you some mushrooms, would you eat them, Joe? I suppose I would. Why? Then I've got it, you see. The worst I'd be accused of would be manslaughter. Doubt if I'd get that. Accidental death pure and simple. A basket of good mushrooms and two or three poisonous ones. No, no. Innocent party might get the poisonous ones. I thought of something better when I was shaving. A bathtub. Pull the legs out from under you. Hold you down. It's been done, but it's still good. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. Good evening, Coralane. <laughs> Are you a vampire all of a sudden? <laughs> no, I was trying to do my Alfred Hitchcock impression. Uh, nailed it. Thank you. We're at episode 165, back to Cole's choice. So, spoiler alert, what are we talking about today? We are talking about Shadow of a Doubt from 1943, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and it's just like he's here in the room. You're welcome. And that stars Teresa Wright, who gets top billing on this one, Joseph Cotton, McDonald Carey, Patricia Collins, Henry Travers, Hume Cronin, and Edna Mae Wanacott. It's about a young girl who is excited that her favorite uncle is coming to visit, but that turns to apprehension and dread as she slowly begins to suspect that he may be the Merry Widow murderer who is being sought after by police. It was written by Thornton Wilder, Sally Benson, and Alma Revel, and was loosely based on the true story of Earl Nelson, the Gorilla Man, an early 20th century serial killer. Now, as he was born in mid-August, we frequently return to Alfred Hitchcock's work at this time of year, going all the way back to our very first episode, and this will be the fifth film of his that we've covered, far more than any other directors that we have featured on the show. And personally, I think it's a little odd that it's turned out that way. He doesn't mean as much to me personally as some other directors. I'm far more emotionally attached to people, for instance, like John Cassavetes, Robert Altman, John Waters, Werner Herzog. Why do you think we come back to him again and again? It's so funny that you ask that because I'm thinking, gosh, do I need to pick a sixth now just to even it all out? I also didn't suspect that it would go this way. But he did make some dang good movies. And there's a lot in each one to talk about. So it seems like it's ripe for material for you and I. Yeah, he's certainly a superior craftsman and storyteller, and I think it's the consistency of quality of his immense body of work compared to a lot of these other directors. And for me, of course, it's the darkness of it all. The themes that he gravitates to appeal to me a lot. This film in particular is in my top three Hitchcock of all time. You have Rope at the very top, never to be defeated, and then Shadow of a Doubt bounces back and forth between second and third, depending on how I feel about Vertigo and or Psycho that day. And it's well established that this was his favorite film of his own. How do you rate this among his filmography? 
You know, as I was thinking about that question, I realized there's something odd here happening as well, because I rarely think about this film. Maybe it's because Teresa Wright comes on pretty strong in the beginning as fairly bland in a very nice way. And I forget that she turns that caricature on its head. I'm still not sure this would be in my top three, but every time I watch it, I'm reminded of how much I adore it. You know, one more thing about Hitchcock before we move on. I think there's the benefit that you and I both got into him at a very young age. Oh, yeah. These are among the very first movies I ever saw. So they made such a huge impression on us, and that's never gone away. Well, you mentioned the sixth film to even it out. I know that there are other shared favorites of his that we will likely get to one of these days. Vertigo, Strangers on a Train. I particularly like The 39 Steps. Are there others that immediately come to mind for you? You know The Lady Vanishes is at the top of my list. I had that two-disc set. It was actually two VHS tapes of that in The 39 Steps. I've watched that film a hundred times, maybe. So plenty of mid-August Hitchcock choices still to come, probably. I'm looking forward to, just for pleasure, watching The Paradigm Case. Not necessarily because it's so great, but Anne Todd is in it, and she made such a huge impression on us a couple of months back with So Evil My Love. Well, speaking of watching for pleasure, this one opens with what I know is your favorite Universal logo, so you're practically guaranteed a good time. You love this Universal logo. I do, because it's the best one. Mm. I don't know why you're arguing with me. It seems more appropriate to me for Hitchcock and his love of models the same way I love models that the little airplane would be more appropriate, but I'll give you this one. So starting with the writing of this thing, Thornton Wilder, he is a pretty significant name at this time and even got a special credit acknowledging his participation in this. And then Sally Benson is no slouch either. She wrote Meet Me in St. Louis, published almost a hundred stories in The New Yorker, had a couple of tales selected as O. Henry Prize stories in 1935 and 1936. What do you feel like they brought to the table here? Well, let's talk about Thornton Wilder first. You know, I'm a huge fan because of Our Town that came out in 1938. And without that play, you don't have this film. Hitchcock specifically chose him because of the play. By the way, side note, I like to think of Steinbeck's East of Eden from 1952 as being the noir follow-up hmm. to this film. Now that you say that, I know he would have probably never chosen her, but imagine how good Julie Harris would have been as a Hitchcock heroine. So good. And thankfully, we do have the publication of Thornton Wilder's original script for this, so we can see how much influence he had on the film. He never shied away from the darkness in our town, that loss of innocence that we'll see in this film. And of course, neither did Hitchcock. I do think that this film definitely made way for the more cynical outlook on humanity that marked all of Hitchcock that came after it. I like to think of Brandon and Rope as being the missing link to get to Uncle Charlie. I love that we open with life under the bridge on the wrong side of the tracks. It sets that amazing contrast against that waltzing upper class, that drunken Dimitri Tiomkin score. So do you think, having seen the film, having seen Our Town, do you think Thornton Wilder was going for a morality play here because he seems to emphasize, especially at the end, that the world needs watching sometimes. It goes crazy sometimes. Or 
do you think he's more about exposing the psychopathic woman hater that is Uncle Charlie and suggesting maybe that's the norm? I think it's more the former. Knowing the general tone of his work, I would say he ultimately comes down on the side of order rather than chaos. Interesting. I think I'm with you on that. Yeah, I think he might have intended it to go a little farther towards that and then Hitchcock undermined that with his contributions and the way he put the whole thing together. But what Wilder does bring to this, far and away, an unerring and very specific sense of Americana that is key to this picture. Small town life at that time, the nostalgia for the turn of the century, the trickling down of the Belle Epoch for the consumption of the average American household, all of that shows up here. And you're right, our town obviously echoes darkly throughout this whole thing. And it's funny, in my notes I had almost the exact same question for you with this. Is the resolution of this more wilder than Hitchcock? Have we left cynicism behind as the natural order is restored, or is something forever changed in our fundamental understanding of these kinds of places and people? I think if you look at Charlie, that's girl Charlie, Charlotte, and Emily together, it's that bleak fate that I think women are facing. For future reference, for the rest of the episode, at least I'm going to try to, when I say just Charlie, I mean Teresa Wright, and when I'm referring to Joseph Cotton, I will say Uncle Charlie, just for clarity's sake. I think it's so funny when you look at all of the connections that seem to happen at that time, because Sally Benson wrote the screenplay for No Man of Her Own, which was based on the story by Cornell Woolrich, who also wrote Rear Window. It really seems like it was a small community and everybody worked together. Yeah, when you get a like-minded community of collaborators that can turn out this kind of darkness, hang on to that. And my recommendation when we get to it later is by a female author as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about the collaborators on the technical side. I know that one of your favorite elements of this film is the camera work, and that's cinematography from Joseph A. Valentine. He shot one of my favorites, My Little Chickadee. He shot one of your favorites, The Wolfman. He worked with Hitchcock multiple times, including Rope. And so there are all sorts of technical things happening here. Uncle Charlie's presence is felt before we even lay eyes on him, thanks to the Dutch angles that they use to shoot outside his window at the boarding house. So we already know something is not quite right. There are multiple point of view shots throughout the film. There's the breaking of the fourth wall in one particularly chilling sequence when Joseph Cotton is staring right down the barrel of the camera at us when he is at his most hateful. And then the camera movement itself gives real energy to everything. Were there particular technical things about it that struck you? There are so many instances of this. In the beginning, seeing Uncle Charlie only in profile for quite a bit... You've got this impeccable suit set against the squalor, and all of that changes. There's all of this pattern across his face and light and dark until he comes outside and he walks directly into the camera, taunting the cops, taunting us. And there's a lot that I love with the sound work here as well. The adult conversations and the overlapping kids' conversations that watch them. The music that weaves itself in and out, even at an emotional level. And then, like you mentioned, just the overall composition of everything and how it all works together. Seeing Uncle Charlie just outside our periphery so many times, just in the shadows. Walking past us without being acknowledged. It's all so smooth. 
I'm thinking specifically about that sequence when Charlie gets upset and she runs out of the house and Uncle Charlie goes after her and the camera is over both of their shoulders, essentially. So you get the entire sense of this pursuit and how inescapable he is. I love that moment when he realizes that his reckoning is possibly coming upon him and he knows he's not alone in the house, but Anne, the younger daughter, is facing away from him. It is so brilliant. And like you say, everything is just so meticulously framed, including what happens just off screen, too. Like when the detective palms that film that he shot of Charlie and passes him a different role. What we are shown, what we're not shown, it's all perfect. The most striking thing to me, I think, though, over and over are all these shots that emphasize the twin nature of these two characters. The way that they adopt the same poses, that they can practically fade from one person into the other. The repetition of actions with just enough difference in them to indicate a friction or a difference in motivation. And then the thing that you referred to just a second ago, that beautiful shot that foreshadows his end when the landlady pulls down the shade and it looks like he's lying in state. He's dead already and he doesn't even know it. I don't know if you realize this, but this movie is pretty darn good. <laughs> there is a lot to cover. And like with so many of our choices, bears rewatching. I think it gives benefits, not diminishing returns. Well, that's just because it works every time. The suspense, especially, it's Hitchcock's stock in trade. For us, Uncle Charlie's guilt is never in doubt. A huge part of Hitchcock's method was giving the audience information that the characters don't have. So what generates this tension is that we know innocents are in danger. The occasional subjective camera, that helps a lot with that too. It inserts the viewer directly into the action, so we're sort of a hybrid. We have a lot of information the characters don't have, but we are looking at things from their vantage point, so we get a sense of being in the room with the danger at the same time. Stairs are a huge deal in Hitchcock for that purpose, and this film is no exception to that. That looming threat waiting at the top of the stairs feels ever-present. It's a position of power and advantage, and you can't get away from it. And then more suspense comes from wondering if and when everyone is going to find out the truth and what will happen when they do. And the most significant case of that, that happens remarkably early in the film, I think. There's about a third of the runtime left when Charlie finally gets confirmation of her suspicions. It's that old Hitchcock analogy, the audience knows there's a bomb on the bus... In this instance, we just don't know at what stop it's going to go off. The tension for me, though, becomes more pronounced once Charlie determines what she will do. That's the huge change. That's the loss of innocence, and then I am there. I like that you mentioned the bomb on the bus, because that action is typically contained within a scene. But Hitchcock sustains that for such a long time, for a whole act, practically, in this one. It becomes a cat and mouse game for that last 30 minutes with us wondering how far Uncle Charlie is willing to go and then getting confirmation that he is willing to go to the ultimate length in the name of self-preservation. Her falling down the stairs, that kills me every time. That is so scary every time it happens. Yeah, the whole thing is just a great lesson in the fact that good suspense takes time if it's done correctly. Like he says, it's not the bang that fills you with dread. That's not where the terror lies. The terror is in the anticipation. And I love that you point out her change, too. That point in the film is also extremely interesting, I think, because we shift our focus from Uncle Charlie to Charlie herself. It's no longer about whether or not Uncle Charlie is a monster. That's confirmed. 
It's all about what Charlie herself is going to do about it. Will she reject the darkness in herself or align herself with it and its violence? How badly does she want to shake off these doldrums and leave behind boring normalcy? I vote you drop in a John Carpenter score on this film and you've got Halloween. You do have some similarities there with all the entrances and exits and back doors and stairways. There's a little bit of a physical layout resemblance to this house, to the Myers house. Yeah, all that stairwell use and Charlie is a final girl. Well, meanwhile, detectives are on Uncle Charlie's trail, so it's time to go until the heat's off. And where better than the Norman Rockwell village of Santa Rosa? So, as we said, Thornton Wilder and Sally Benson were perfect compatriots to flesh out this version of small-town life that we find once we arrive there. Now, Rebecca was Hitchcock's first film for an American studio, but this really is what I would consider Hitchcock's first truly American film, or at least the first one where Americana was so essential to the story. You have Mr. and Mrs. Smith on one hand, you've got Saboteur on the other. Saboteur is probably closer to fitting that bill, but this is truly down-home Main Street, USA. Well, Saboteur, with the World War element, I think it does make it more international. Yeah, that very specific white picket fence nuclear family optimism is absolutely necessary as a contrast to the darkness that is pulling into town on that train. Dad at one point says, I don't believe in inviting trouble, talking about the superstition of the hat on the bed. Well, guess what? Sometimes trouble invites itself. So we need this purity as an opposite force to that darkness, and we can argue about whether or not those are equal opposite forces. And most importantly, we need an ideal that can be undermined and corrupted. It makes me wonder if David Lynch has a real fondness for this film, because I think you can trace a straight line between Shadow of a Doubt and Blue Velvet, with both of them darkly insisting that something unsavory is going on just beneath the surface of these idyllic towns. Here's where I'm going to quibble with you just a little bit. Okay. Because what sticks out to me isn't that the town's underbelly is so seamy or disgusting. It's more that we as a society have to understand that nothing and no one is pure or innocent anywhere. Those bars aren't on the outskirts of town. They're not hidden. It's all there if you care to look for it. And we all know this. We wouldn't watch so many gangster films or noir that came after this if we didn't know it. We wouldn't read those murder magazines just like Herbert. Wilder and Hitchcock are just daring us to face ourselves. They had to know that at least some people in the audience listening to Uncle Charlie might be on his side sometimes. Well, I'm going to quibble back. I'm going to make one point that I think goes the opposite direction. Okay, hit me. Because with Blue Velvet, clearly... That darkness, that criminal element, is part of the town as it exists now. Santa Rosa is so perfect, quote-unquote, that it has to import that darkness. Nothing this evil exists there, but there are other insidious things, you're right, that are happening that I'll talk about. Gotcha. So a matter of degrees. The true evil doesn't live there. He begins to awaken it. And I really do think Hitchcock needed a perfect place like that, because that makes the disillusionment sting that much more. It's a steeper decline and therefore much more effective when the most pure and the most innocent are at risk of being defiled. And speaking of being defiled, the thing that stands out the absolute most to me every time I go back to this is how prescient this was on the true crime front. 
Uncle Charlie was obviously a serial killer before we even had the phrase. I mentioned earlier that it was based on the case of Earl Leonard Nelson. He was actually the first known American serial sex murderer of the 20th century. Yeah, his crime spree consisted of 22 known murders. Yeah, that's a number that wouldn't be eclipsed until 1971. Pretty crazy. And he crossed the U.S. and Canada. He was hanged in 1928. There's a fairly famous photo of him taken in jail where he is regarding his hands. Have you seen that picture? No, just the mug shots. It's nightmarish. It looks like he could kill with absolute ease. Now, Joseph Cotton is obviously much more charming and handsome, at least most of the time. And that's just another one of those things that this movie almost preternaturally understood. And I keep coming back over and over again to how on the money this was, particularly in a time where information about this sort of thing was relatively scant. It would be decades before the study of this type of criminal sociopathy would be available to the culture at large. And yet, here we are in 1943 with this completely incisive picture of what we would later come to define as an organized process killer. I would plump a little bit more for him being a psychopath than a sociopath. I've just been reading up on psychopathy and... It seems like he's ticking all the boxes here. Well, he definitely ticks more of these boxes as the FBI behavioral unit would lay them out later. He's an organized killer because typically those are much harder to catch because of premeditation and preparation. He's not striking spur of the moment and leaving a lot of evidence behind. And then he's a process killer as opposed to a product killer because it's the killing itself that's the focus hitting on that streak of sadism that runs through his bones. Product killers kill because the end result is that it generates something that they feel like they need. A comatose sex slave in the case of Jeffrey Dahmer, skin to make lampshades for Ed Gein. Now there could be a slight argument made maybe that money is the product of Uncle Charlie's murders, but I think the opening scene in the boarding house undoes that. Money is just haphazardly scattered everywhere on the floor. It means nothing to him. In contrast, though, one of the darker, more insidious things that I think is happening in Santa Rosa, supposedly clean Santa Rosa, is so much is about money and status. But that's not something that Uncle Charlie's concerned with. He's not concerned with the product, ultimately. Some product killers are even upset that they have to kill to get the thing that they need. That is definitely not the case with Uncle Charlie. He sees himself as an avenger of sorts, I think. And we can see that it is twisted and perverse from our side, but in his head, I think he has an almost holy mission he feels like he needs to fulfill. Well, we wouldn't get to the study of this kind of person for a while, but at the same time, there were tons of examples for those true crime magazines to capitalize on. And going back to Nelson for just a second, his victims were middle-aged landladies, but he used the guise of Christianity to make his way through these relationships. The ultimate exploitation of the pious and devout. Absolutely. And it's so interesting to me as well that we get this term psycho coming into the popular vernacular because of Hitchcock. I did learn recently psychopaths are not necessarily psychotic. So those pathologies do keep tracking because if you look at psycho, he's got the mental disorder, he's got the abnormal thinking and the delusions. But psychopaths are in touch with their own reality, for sure. 
And it just keeps going on and on. There are numerous things that we would come to see regularly in the literature on this later. They recount Uncle Charlie's head injury as a boy and how it changed his entire demeanor. That happened to Nelson when he was a kid. Yeah, that's frequently pointed out as a causal link in these cases. Some studies show that serial killers routinely have a 20 to 25% chance of having had a serious head trauma in their youth. Now, this movie doesn't go as far as to point out any of the factors that make up the McDonald triad, which is the classic serial killer indicator triad. But I wouldn't be surprised to find out that Uncle Charlie had a history of cruelty to animals, minor arson, and or bedwetting in some combination. I would actually be pretty amazed if any of those details had made it into this film. I guess you can't have everything. But they got the narcissism of some of these characters definitely right. Often, these criminals will think that they are always the smartest person in the room. And sometimes they'll be right. But you'll see it time and time again in police interviews, interrogation videos. It's that kind of arrogance and overestimation of their own abilities that ultimately leads to their undoing. I would have liked to have seen that ending Psycho scene in this film instead. We didn't need it in Psycho to explain it to us, but it would be fascinating to see Uncle Charlie go up against the cops. Or a psychoanalyst. Yeah, in Uncle Charlie's case, we don't get that, but where it does manifest itself is in his speeches. These lengthy diatribes about the evils of the world and what should be done about them. These should be major red flags to anyone who is paying even the slightest bit of attention. And even smaller moments like going into the bank and talking about everything's a joke to me, he's constantly putting one over and laughing at everybody else. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall at his Santa Rosa ladies auxiliary speech? I would have loved to have seen what he said to them. Apparently it blew some minds and everybody was dropping panties. Yeah, he can't help but expose his true nature and he thinks his cleverness will always save him in the end. And then there's the issue of trophies. We know now that the lure of keeping trophies from these grisly deeds is sometimes irresistible and a behavior very common to serial killers. So this ring that he gives to Charlie is exhibit A for that. When he says later that he got rid of it, you know that's a lie. He would never, ever do such a thing, even if it meant a much higher risk of getting caught. These mementos that take him back to these moments of brutality are integral to being able to relive that crime, which is something I am sure he does with great relish. I knew she would find that ring when she looked for it in his room. Basically, the serial killer boom in the 70s and 80s and all the literature that came from that essentially bears out just about every observation that they make here about Uncle Charlie's criminal behavior and motivations. It was incredibly forward-thinking in that regard, impressively so. Now, I need to ask your opinion about something I was watching. The other day, I watched a special feature on this, and there was an interview with Pat Hitchcock. Who I have to say, I grew to like more as an adult than as a young person on camera. Yeah, I typically enjoy her contributions quite a bit, actually. In this case, they were discussing, among other things, mother figures in her father's films. Now, she insisted that none of that was drawing upon his real life, that they were made up from the whole cloth of his imagination, that there were no real-life parallels and nothing personal made it into these movies. Do you have a one-word review of that statement? No, I've got a mini-word <laughs> review of that statement because I am inclined to kind of believe her, and here's why. Oh, come on, okay. Because <laughs> my one-word review was going to be bollocks. 
Will you tell me what you think first? Okay. I think based solely on her own experience, it seems a little disingenuous or self-deluding at least, coming from someone who clearly had a surrogate character for herself in a number of her father's films. Strangers on a Train, Here, all these nerdy little girls are just analogs for Pat Hitchcock. So she's just lying to herself about herself even. Okay, here's where I'm going to maybe prove you wrong okay. slightly. Because... I think this has more to do with Alma Revel. She had so many contributions to every single one of his films. So I think it was her that was creating these parallels, maybe from her own life, from larger experience. I think she worked all of those in, and I think Hitchcock just went along with it. The fact that he appeared in all of these, that's just narcissism. Well, I admire you for trying, at least. Okay. I don't know that I completely buy it. I didn't bring you onto my side. Okay, that's fine. But since we're on the subject, let's talk a little bit more about family. So this is supposed to be representative of the nice, typical American family of the era. How do you think it does on that front? How do you feel about this family dynamic? I liked that they all turned out to be a lot more interesting than I first thought they were. What's crazy to me is how old everyone is in terms of age of parentage and then the children's ages yeah i think it's accurate if american households at the time were presentable on the outside and then full of pockets of repression on the inside which i have no problem believing the parents are somewhat neutered and benign dad is doddering and fills his downtime with violent fantasies and then it's hinted that mom is somewhat fragile I don't think mom is so fragile. I think she just has a long memory and changed circumstances. She's got all of those family memories to contend with that might have included her little brother's bedwetting, arson, and cruelty to animals, possibly. And I think mom is aware of everything. I end up liking her the most. I just assume that she always thought she had to protect the baby of the family, but it didn't quite work out that way. I really think she had to know there was something different about him from the start, even if she couldn't put her finger on it. Well, speaking of putting your finger on it, sex, or at least the specter of it, infuses a lot of these daily activities too, especially once Uncle Charlie arrives. You notice that Dad doesn't step all the way into his own daughter's room in the beginning until Mom arrives and enters first, almost like a chaperone is necessary. There can be no hint of impropriety in the best of families. Mom, meanwhile, she fawns over Uncle Charlie and especially laments his departure at the end more like a lover than a sister, almost. Another huge age gap that seems just odd. And then there's Charlie herself. She is completely disillusioned and bored with the rhythm of daily life, ranting in her teen angsty way about the life that's been assigned to her mother, Dinner, then dishes, then bed. And how she never wants that for herself. And I don't blame her one little bit. I am well past my teen angst years, at least chronologically. And I don't want that either. It sounds like a fate worse than death to me. And then looking at where we are in American history, we are seeing the last, I think, of this type of optimism and ideal family with the end of the war and the return of those servicemen. Things are are about to change considerably and trust in truth, justice, and the American way, all capitals, will steadily decline post-war until the Kennedy assassination finishes that off for good. Charlie, for her part of that, she seems 
eager to accelerate that. Her attitudes about the status quo and seeking to undo it are the very thing that will contribute to the devolution of the nuclear family as we knew it then. It is such an interesting period. Everyone had to be on edge the whole time. The parents have lived through World War I. They've got to be relieved that their youngest son is too young to get drafted and that Charlie is a girl. They got through the worst of the Depression, but just. They're at this tipping point that they don't quite understand, and there are still a few more war years in front of them. I do love that what Charlie carries inside her has her lean into that more than be afraid of it. That unsettled feeling. That feeling of not being on firm footing in our status in the world, how the war is going to turn out. She is craving even more instability, at least in the beginning. She says that Uncle Charlie, he will shake us up. Absolutely correct. And then follows that up by saying that he will save us. Maybe not so correct. It's like her wish for a life free from dull routine. She may end up getting more than she bargained for. And things like this always make me come back to this point. What is wrong with us as humans vis-a-vis the wish thing? I am always perplexed at the monkey's paw type self-punishment that we build into that sort of thing. We made up the idea. We made up the concept of wishing. We could have made it anything we want, but the one thing that we all know is to be careful what you wish for. The psychology of that astounds me. Let me tell you about a little thing called the Matrix. (laughs) But I digress. Yeah, she doesn't know that she's asking to actually take charge of her and her family's life. She's about to graduate to the big leagues, and this is without going off to college or getting a job, which could be options for her. Well, her intuition that she and her uncle are similar, it implies to me that she knowingly carries a darkness also, because she's right about that. Yeah, you don't lay in bed in the dark, in my case, listening to Desperado over and over again, without realizing that you have some darkness in you. In this case, they are clearly more than just uncle and niece. Do you think when he slips that ring on her finger that the audience at the time had an involuntary shudder there? Because there's clearly a sexual component to their feelings. And I think that actually extends to every female character we encounter over the age of 10. I think you're totally right. And I actually was reading through some other notes and I misread it as Uncle Charlie asked Charlie to marry him and... I could actually totally believe that. On both sides of that equation, the audience had to notice it. Teresa Wright is breathless. She backs up against the wall coyly. She does the same thing with Jack. She has the same mannerisms, fiddling with the gloves or with her hands behind her back. And Uncle Charlie is closer to her age than anyone else except for Jack. And it makes me shiver. I don't know about you. It fills me with anticipation, to quote Rocky Horror. Good job. He's just so charming and so undeniable in his presence. And he can certainly speak the language that's common around Santa Rosa dinner tables. He has this effect on everybody. You watch these interactions. That first dinner, he comes bearing gifts. So obviously, that's his way in, as if he needed one. Second dinner, you have all this talk about financial plans. So he is trying to fit into the community in the way that they interact most with each other. Yeah, their literal currency, what they value. 
And then that third dinner, that's when he's gotten a little too comfortable. That's when he unleashes this monologue about wives, widows, useless women, to which Charlie responds, they're alive, they're human beings. Are they? He says, I love this scene so much. It's one of the most iconic and chilling cinematic speeches I know. So does our mood as the audience change how we hear it? And by that, I mean, sometimes do we think people in general are pigs? Not, I'm not talking about women, I'm not talking about the women hating, but sometimes we would be happy for them to be disposed of. And then maybe sometimes not. So I think what you're saying is if Uncle Charlie slipped that ring on your finger, it's yes, yes, yes. Sometimes we all go a little mad, right? I think it's true. I think that thing that you were saying about audience members sitting out there in the dark, agreeing with at least some of this, maybe in some cases, all of it. So watch out for those guys. I don't think that was a rare occasion. I know there are definitely things that I feel a kinship in what he's saying. The world's a hell, so who cares what happens? I feel that sometimes. You had me right up until the very end. You know, you could say that about some of his speeches. It's similar to the world's greatest sinner in that way. And it Timothy kind of Carey, is. I agree with about 60% of what he says, 60% of the time. Well, on the flip side of this darkness, let's talk about something else here. Like most of Hitchcock's films, this is shot through with some brilliant dark humor as well. Just the word choices are noteworthy in that regard. Thanks most awfully is the response to the telegram announcing Uncle Charlie's arrival. And then I love you terribly is something that she says later as well. These adverbs are so perfectly chosen. And then Hume Cronin as Herbie, dad's friend, and their obsession with murder. Murder, that's just your father's way of relaxing. What wish fulfillment do you think is happening here? Does Uncle Charlie represent the life that these two men wish they had enough nerve to pursue? I wonder if it's going back to Butch and Sundance. Is it the love of the outlaw and getting away with it sometimes? Because I have heard this so many times in real life that murder is a pastime. It's a main form of entertainment in so many households, including this one. Yeah, true. Dad does make clear, we're not talking about killing people. Herbie's talking about killing me and I'm talking about killing him. There is a dividing line very clearly in his mind there. But unfortunately for them, unbeknownst to them, the difference between fantasy and reality, that is all colliding head on in this household. And I think they feel it even if most of them can't put their finger on exactly why. Now, Charlie, she's the closest one of all of them to understanding. And it's that she may be too smart for her own good in this case. She's picking up all these clues. A flash of anger from Uncle Charlie about the newspaper. She puts together that the questionnaire men are actually detectives, but what to do about it? This person is so important to her, and this will shatter her entire conception of how the world works. Add to that, when your very namesake is a killer, it must feel like an impossible situation, especially for a young person, facing the things that you don't want to believe about a loved one. Most of our lessons that usher us into adulthood are not this drastic. But it's there in the true crime literature as well. Another tie-in here. The Unabomber was turned in by his own brother. These things can't be easy to face, but they do happen this way. Fast forward 80 years and Charlie submits her DNA to <laughs> a list and discovers, oh yeah, my uncle was a serial murderer. 
Well, I referred to this earlier. Upset by her father's murder pastime, Charlie runs out of the house, only to be pursued and caught by her uncle, who pulls her into the wonderfully named, I think, Till Two Club. I love the name of this joint. I've never been in a place like this, she says. More evidence of his corrupting influence, and I especially like it as a mirror of her date with Graham at the diner earlier. And here Joseph Cotton delivers, I think, an even better speech than at the dinner table. The world is a foul sty. If you rip the fronts off of houses, inside you will find swine. Man, those are two great speeches. I don't know which one's my favorite. They're both incredibly good. Well, the irony about Uncle Charlie's speeches is actually that he is the animal. He is the one completely ruled by his darkest, most savage impulses. But all of that is kept for the most part, unless you are one of these unfortunate widows, under this smooth veneer. And this final appeal that Uncle Charlie makes to her is a perfect example of that. It is masterful. The same blood flows through our veins, Charlie. That has to hit her where she lives, because in her heart, she suspects it might be true. He hints at suicidal thoughts. He asks for help, essentially admitting to the whole thing. Then, though, word comes that the police have their man, they think. And so now Uncle Charlie is going to stay. But proving that he is at least partially right about their shared nature, she threatens to kill him herself. And that's a shocking moment, or at least it should be. Was it to you? It's totally shocking and very gratifying. I am totally into her when she says this because I think she's smart enough to realize that he has said this threat of suicide because he thinks it's what would appeal to her or to anyone seeming as though he actually has a conscience, which we know he doesn't. He's too much of a narcissist to ever go through with suicide. Well, one thing we do know, she will be in constant danger from this point on. And Uncle Charlie does acquiesce eventually and decides to leave, but only after trying to kill her twice. So she puts on her most funereal dress and goes to see him off at the station with the rest of the family. This is now his last chance to make this look like an accident. So his desperation is at a peak. I gotta say, I am still surprised that he goes for it because I think she could be trusted not to say anything. And he's got Mrs. Potter waiting for him. So he could get away scot-free. Well, the tables are ultimately turned, as we know, and he falls into the path of an oncoming train. Now, crucial to our understanding of the film, I think, is the question... Did she kill him, or do you consider this an accident? Gosh, that is a tough question, because we don't see him go down, which is kind of shocking, because he's been this main force. So it's just sort of implied. I'm going to quibble again. I went back and watched that scene just before we came in here. Oh, good. Okay, tell me what you I think. I very much think she killed him. There is a definite push. Really? Which makes the very last moment so wonderful because at his funeral, she's wearing light colors. So the end. Basically, good luck with this dud detective. I have to say, I think the most downbeat part of the ending for me is thinking that this whole experience has scared Charlie into embracing that dull routine, just running straight into the arms of average. The only thing that alleviates that for me a little is the reappearance of these dancers and the Merry Widow Waltz. This link to the darkness popping up like it does implies to me that Uncle Charlie's touch will extend from beyond the grave. 
we have to consider our quote-unquote happy ending at the expense of what could have been, but it makes us think about what still resides in her. Okay, here's how I read that, because I think it's played in an interesting way. I know that you and the majority of people really think, okay, she just goes right into his arms because that's the less bleak of the bleak choices that she has in front of her. But I like her body language here so much. She's not inside the funeral. She's outside with her hat on, which is the first time we've seen her do that. And she doesn't embrace Jack or even look at him. So I'm not sure that we're giving her enough credit. I'm not saying that she's going to go on a merry widower killing spree, but who knows? Well, seeing how that particular set of circumstances and that embrace of the darkness might play out, that actually factors in highly to my recommendation. So I'm going to go straight to that. And I'm going to recommend Stoker from 2013. And that's directed by Park Chan-wook, making his debut English language feature film. And it stars Mia Vashakovska, Nicole Kidman, Lantern favorite Jackie Weaver, and Matthew Good. I've got it saved in my HBO Max queue as we speak. Yeah, I'll be curious to see what you think about it. It's about a young woman who is grieving her father's death and whose uncle comes to stay with her and her emotionally unstable mother. She slowly begins to question his motives while also becoming increasingly infatuated with him. Now, this is clearly influenced by Shadow of a Doubt, and the filmmakers don't try to make a secret of that fact. The uncle's name is Charlie. He's a classic, charming villain. There's much attention paid to the twin nature of niece and uncle. There's a strong erotic undercurrent to the whole thing. There's a crucial staircase in it. But before this sounds like just a ripoff, it uses those things as just a springboard into something much different than Shadow of a Doubt. If you like me, were rooting for Charlie to delve more into her own darkness, you might really like this interpretation. And Nicole Kidman, I think, gives a really underrated performance that feels so brittle. And it's just a joy to look at, too. The frame is filled with references and clues without feeling overstuffed. I know critical feeling is kind of mixed about this one, but I think it deserves a watch or even two. What about you? Well, I'm going to go watch Stoker. But before that, I chose a film in keeping with that theme of hiding information from people with the idea that they just couldn't handle it. And the film that I chose discusses this on a much larger scale, and that is Keeper of the Flame from 1942. It was directed by George Cukor with Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn. I mentioned this earlier, it was adapted by Donald Ogden Stewart from the novel of the same name by I.A.R. Wiley, who was a female author, and he adapted it just a couple of months after it had been published. It's about the death of a very famous civic leader and the war correspondent who has set out to write a great biography of this incredibly loved man. The great man's widow, though, on the other hand, doesn't want to cooperate, and it looks like the man's accidental death may not have been an accident. I will not ruin the ending for you, but let's just say that it also resonates today because the film attacks wealth and fascism, anti-unionism, anti-Semitism, and in so doing was incredibly controversial at the time. Republican members of Congress tried to get Will Hayes to ban it. The Office of War Information had a big problem with it. 
And there are a lot of parallels, maybe, to William Randolph Hearst, who was a big friend of Louis B. Mayer. So the film didn't gain anybody any friends at the time. But I want you to watch it for yourself and see what you think. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Stoker and Keeper of the Flame. And that brings us to the end of episode 165. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. We have also added a simple donation button to the website, so if Patreon is not your thing and you'd rather just make a one-time PayPal donation to help keep the lantern lit, you can go to magiclanternpodcast.com and just look for the donate button in the upper right corner under the header, and that's in the main drop-down menu if you're on a mobile device. We appreciate everyone's support so much. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. The fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Spencer Seams at the Shoot the Piano Player podcast, Chris Polizza, Keith Rich, Jeff Duncanson, Richard Sales, and Andy Wolverton. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Audible, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us there. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 